I'm Dirk Hartung. And my name is Loris Gerlach. And this is the Legal Tech Podcast Series, an original series podcast production by Law Podcast Media. Today it's just the two of us, but this is the first installment in a series on legal technology that we are hosting. Over the coming weeks, we will talk to innovators in the space from Europe and the US, so you can hear about this exciting new market from a couple of different viewpoints. But first off, a little bit more about ourselves. So we both work at Bucerius Law School, a small, private, non-profit law school in Hamburg, Germany. My co-host Dirk is Executive Director of the Center for Legal Technology and Data Science at Bucerius Law School. He is also a non-residential fellow at Codex, the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics. His academic work focuses on the regulation of legal profession and on quantitative and computational legal studies. He has also published studies on the legal market with the Boston Consulting Group and the Bucerius Center on the Legal Profession. Thank you, Larry. Now over to you. You're actually the assistant director at the Center for Legal Technology and Data Science. You're currently a PhD student at Bucerius Law School, and your work focuses on legal technology, legal operations, and also data privacy legislation. Together with our colleague Daniel Martin-Katz from Chicago, we have started numerous activities at the center. For example, the Buceo's Summer Program on Legal Technology and Operations and the lecture series Buceo's Legal Tech Essentials. So before we dive into our conversation today, I want to be sure that those of you who are in a hurry know where to get more of this. You find our Essentials Program, which is a curated, intense program for the next couple of weeks under buceri.us slash essentials. That is B-U-C-E-R-I dot U-S slash E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S. Buceri.us slash essentials. But now let's get into the topic of this entire series and our conversation today. It's legal technology. And since we're from an educational institution, it's legal technology education. And I want to start by describing the size of the problem that we're talking about. The digitization of the legal profession and legal services are not a one-off phenomenon. It's not something that can be done over the next one or two years. And it's not something that a couple of people in your firm, in your in-house department, or in your school can do on their own. It is probably the single biggest challenge for the legal profession and the legal system. And so this is immensely important and it is so on a global scale. That's why we will approach this topic from different angles over the next couple of weeks. And today we're focusing on an intro on why we need legal technology and how we can teach it. So Larry, after having been in this space for a while, what is your take on why we need legal technology? Technology helps people deal with things more quickly and more efficiently, and it helps even out inefficiencies in the market. And it's not just technology that you need. You also need a good process. You also need to optimize your design and your delivery, which is what Dan Katz calls together law, technology, design, and delivery. And all these things need to come together to make the legal system better. Because, for example, you cannot just digitize your process if the process is bad and expect to have a better result, but rather you'll just have digitized a bad process. You will also have to make sure that the end user is in the focus of what you're doing. So you have to design with the end user in mind. It's an interplay, but technology is the most important piece of it because it's the most recent to get to a level where you can actually use it to power meaningful change in the legal system. So let's take a step back also and think about what it is that lawyers do on a daily basis. I like to think about this as risk handling and complexity management. And I mean that for their clients, lawyers have to assess legal risk, which can be a muddy business. They have to figure out whether to pursue a claim or not. 
they have to figure out whether a particular action might actually violate a certain law. And that's one part of the job. And the other part of the job is to make sense of the ever-increasing number of rules and regulations around us. In some recent work that we have published, we have looked at the mere number of statutes and words within them in the US and Germany. And we have found that over the last 20 years, there has been an incredible increase in language alone. Now, if you look at the interconnectedness and the structure of these laws, We have been looking, by the way, at federal statutes in the United States and Germany. You'll see that the increase is even greater. So it is not just you in our audience that has this feeling that things are getting more and more difficult to manage. It's actually happening and we can show it in the numbers. So in order to make sense of the legal world for their clients, be it private individuals or companies or nonprofits or even government agencies that require legal advice, it's vital that lawyers can completely understand the complexity and provide a service to their clients that's useful. And that's why I think technology plays a really important role. So Dirk, a common way of dealing with complexity, and that's a way we've seen over the decades past, is to just staff more people on the problem. For example, the number of lawyers in Germany has increased by a factor of 10, I think, over 70 years. So maybe the answer is just to have more people address the problem, right? Well, I will borrow an idea from the great friend of mine and colleague, Bill Henderson, who is currently a professor at Indiana University, Morris School of Law. And he says that this is in part true. So increase in headcount can help you deal with an increase in complexity as long as that increase is linear. Because every person you add can handle a bit more complexity. But as long as you do not make the individual more productive, all you can do is increase your headcount by one and thereby handle some more units of complexity. Now, what we've been seeing, for example, in that research that I just mentioned, but also in the duration of court proceedings, for example, or wherever you actually measure, we have seen that there is an increase that looks much more like exponential. So adding more people to the problem won't really solve it. The key is to make every single one of these people more productive. And that's where you need technology, because part of it is, of course, organizing your labor and figuring out how to work together in large teams. But another part is handing it over to the machines where they can help us solve problems, where they can sift through hundreds and thousands of documents in mere seconds, where they can help us visualize complex problems so that we can understand them much more quickly. It is this interplay of humans and technology, something that we could call augmented lawyers, that will help us with that complexity growth dash productivity problem that in the end will be the core problem for our profession. Let's go back to that problem for a second. I am aware that this is still an open research question, but do you have any theories on what is prompting that exponential growth in complexity? That's a really good question. That will take a short moment to answer. The theoretical foundation of what we are doing, and by we, I mean the folks that are using computational methods to solve legal problems, the quantitative computational legal research community. This underlying theory is complexity theory. We think that law as part of human society 
is what we call a complex adaptive system. That is an incredibly useful and also hard to understand idea. So I suggest that people go and look it up. There's really great books that introduce you to it, but the mere Wikipedia pages are pretty good. So if you look up complexity theory, complex adaptive systems, you get an idea what all this is about. I'll break it down and simplify a bit. We know that systems, such as the legal system, where many different actors influence each other, produce outcomes that are not easily predictable with traditional means. It is really so many agents moving around doing things that it can be hard to fully make sense of it. And some of these actions and some of the players in the legal industry might reinforce what others are doing, creating feedback loops and thereby leading to exponential growth of problems of work required in certain areas. It's really a huge complex thing and we're just beginning to understand it. So what is driving this? Well, I would say, and this is a hypothesis from my side, one is there is an incredible growth in information out there. So with more information, people have more options. Companies have more options and at every single step of the way, they have to take in more input and make sense of it. Two is, I think the products that are out there are getting better and better. We have amazing things today that we couldn't even think of, say, 10, 20 years ago. And all these products and services touch on so many different problems, require so many moving parts to work together, that if you want to regulate them, if you want to make sure that you get the behavioral outcome that you're looking for, your law has to mirror this increase in interactions and in complexity. So it's really, I would say, the world as it becomes a more exciting place, creating more difficult problems for law. And I don't want anybody to think that this is a pessimistic point of view. Actually, it's a great place out there. And the people who make the legal rules are doing a really good job keeping our society safe, making sure that we can have good new stuff like autonomous vehicles or smartphones. It requires a lot of alignment of various different players to make this possible. And then it requires other people to make sense of it. So I would say it is digitization and globalization and an increase in data that are at the root for this. But we need much more work to figure out whether that's true. For that purpose, we need to educate people and especially lawyers in the right way. And I think one way of thinking about that is an idea by Aramani Smothers that's called the T-shaped lawyer. But you know what? I think I'm talking too much. So maybe you could just walk us through that idea and break it down for our audience. So the T-shaped lawyer, there's the idea of the T-shaped professional in many different disciplines. And the first person to apply it to the legal domain was Armani Smothers. And the idea of the T-shaped professional in general is that the knowledge of a professional is like a T because the T has a downwards facing beam. So it's like an I, and that is the deep expertise in a specific domain. So for example, a lawyer has a deep knowledge of the legal system and the law. And that's the main differentiating criterion that makes him a lawyer, right? Or her. And usually we had these I-shaped professionals they were very good at one thing, but that's all they did. And now with this increase in complexity and with the increase in interdisciplinary teams and with the increase in generally tasks that require many different viewpoints, we need more T-shaped professionals. And what do I mean by that? Well, the T as the feature that differentiates it from an I has a crossbar. It has this beam across the top and that's smaller knowledge, but it's broader knowledge. So for example, they have 
knowledge of adjacent fields. For example, lawyers have knowledge of business, or they have knowledge of technology, or they have knowledge of process improvement and project management. And these don't have to be as deep as the knowledge of the law, so not as deep as the beam of the T, but they are sufficient to make something happen. And that's the idea of the T-shaped lawyer. That's exactly right. And so for an educator such as you and me, our question is, how do we create these T-shaped professionals, these T-shaped lawyers? Because naturally, not everybody is enthusiastic about technology. That's not why many people come to law school. And I think we should get it right out of the way that we're not trying to make everyone a software developer or a computer scientist. We are working on those top knowledge skills, the fields where you do not need full in-depth expertise but where what you need is at least conversational knowledge and at best the capacity to work as a member of an interdisciplinary team. To actually understand what the software developer across the table is asking, to actually be able to articulate what your needs as a subject matter expert are. In our students, I think we see about two different personas. There are those who are all in. They want law, but they also want technology. Maybe their alternate choice for a degree would have been computer science or mathematics or physics. And for those, we have to create specializations and make sure that we can profit from their natural curiosity towards these topics. And then there are those who are not deeply interested in tech, but for these folks, we have to make sure that they reach this level of where they can be a valuable member of an interdisciplinary team, or at least where they will be able to understand the outputs of technology when they face them in their day-to-day -day life. I'll give you an example. If you are a judge in, say, a social court, and you have chosen to do that because you want to make sure that the way the government and the people interact is done in a fair way, you might not think of that as a particularly technological field. But sooner or later, you will have to decide about the outcomes of algorithms, you'll have to decide about the outcomes of automatic systems, and you have to understand what these systems are doing and how they work to assess whether they meet the fairness criterion that you are trying to apply in that interaction between the individual and the state. So no matter how far you think as a student you might be from technology in the 21st century, it will come to you and you will have to understand it. And the best way to understand it is not through fear, is not through metaphors, is through taking the time to develop a fundamental understanding of how computers work. Not advanced, but just enough to make sense of the world around you. And here at Butzerius, we have been at this for a while. Larry, what would you say is our first point of contact for a student when they are curious about legal technology? Sure. I'd say there are two different formats that I'd highlight here. The first is the Legal Technology Lecture Series, which is our lowest commitment offering. It's just a talk and you show up and you listen to someone tell their story. Mostly it's a personal story of someone who founded some kind of legal technology company or someone who implemented a new process in a company or in a public institution. And it talks about how you can use technology to make things better. And that's just an evening talk and people can come there and it's open to the public. And it's a good format to just get a glimpse of what legal technology really is. For our students, And in order to establish the baseline that Dirk talked about, we want to have a baseline of knowledge for everyone so that everyone can deal with data and computer science and algorithms and stuff like that when they are faced with it in their daily work. Our method for establishing that baseline is our LLB classes. 
which require a little more commitment. But in our regular undergraduate degrees, our students can take a range of classes that can educate them to hopefully the point where they achieve that ability to talk to other people from other fields about what they're doing and to understand the very basics of what these other fields are about. So we have intro to computer science for lawyers. We have intro to data science. We have intro to programming where people learn Python. We have ethics of technology and law, and we have a hands-on machine learning and law class together with our friends from the University of Hamburg uh, Department of Computer Science, where we work with people in the language technology group to work on natural language processing problems together with students of computer science. So those are the two formats that we employ. And that's just the baseline. So going a bit further from that, Dirk, what else can we do at Bucerius when people want to do more? Thank you for giving it back to me. I will briefly highlight that when people go through all of these classes that you mentioned, right, computer science, data science, programming, ethics, and then the software development internship, they can get a certificate out of that. And it's surprising to see that despite these classes being rather hard and difficult for students, um, we see an ever-increasing number of our student population going for it because people have a natural understanding that this field or that these skills are very valuable for the future. But you asked me for other offerings, and I want to highlight our flagship product, the summer program Legal Technology and Operations. It's a three-week program with people from all over the world, between 30 and 40 typically, that have to apply, that are selected, and then over the course of three very intense weeks, work in workshops with, I think, an absolute stellar line of lecturers from academia and practice from all over the world. They not only learn how these technologies work and get a conceptual understanding, the most important terms, but they actually apply them. They work in teams to build actual prototypes when they want to. They learn how to convince people in their organizations to tag along and try out new stuff. They are exposed to ideation ideas, and they also understand the bigger picture of why what they are learning is important and how that ties into general legal education. Some of them are students while others are professionals and it's a really exciting time, but it was not possible to hold it this year and last year because of the pandemic. So we had to come up with something in place of this fantastic three-week on-campus program. And that was really difficult because we so much wanted to do it last year that we kept waiting and waiting, hoping that we would have this pandemic under control before realizing that it would get much worse before it gets better. So what we created is something I mentioned earlier on. It's the Bucerius Legal Tech Essentials. This is, again, a free program with a lecture series that over the course of four weeks during the month of May... We'll have 16 presentations with Q&A from, I think, a really interesting bunch of people because this pandemic forces all of us to stay at home and look at our screens. And that's true for the world's most renowned experts as well. So a really interesting group of people that are very difficult to get in one place normally is suddenly available and they'll be available in your living room Every night, if you live in Europe or over your lunch break in the US, or if you happen to live in Asia, we'll have an option for you to not have to stay up until two in the morning. You will have a chance, by the way, to ask questions and get instant feedback so that it feels like a personal experience. And then there is the community that comes out of all of this. 
Larry, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we had over 5,000 participants last year and things are looking to be of equal size right now with, at the time of the recording, over a week away from our very first session. Seriously, I'm really excited about this and I'm so much looking forward to another edition of Fuzero's Legal Tech Essentials that I wanted to mention it. But this is not an advertisement for Fuzero's Law School. This is an introduction to the field. And it should convince you on why you want to listen to the other episodes that will follow after this one. And I don't know about you, but when I got started with all of this, maybe 2014 or so, I found it difficult to actually make sense of what was out there under the topic of legal technology. And I really would have hoped that there's someone providing some guidance to it. Back then, I found Codex, the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics, and their YouTube channel very helpful. I found Dan Katz, who had just written a phenomenal piece called The MIT School of Law, very helpful for my personal journey. And I know that I profited a lot from these early guiding posts. So that is another thing that we want to do with our essentials, but also with our publications, with blog posts, with presentations really all over the planet, because I'm very convinced that we have to keep this community open to new people every day. Because as I said at the outset, the task of digitizing the legal profession is so large that we really need every single hand we can get across all areas across all different parts of the legal system and society. And Larry, your personal journey started somewhat later than mine, but I'm curious to hear why you actually decided to do that. Why did you decide to go into this area? And also, what was it like a couple of years later? I would say I really entered the legal technology space in 2017 which is also when I started working for you. And I've always been interested in computers and I've always been interested in the law. And I just happened to study law and that meant I had to give up on my other passion or so I thought. And then in the end, there was this field that sort of married the two together while still being sort of new. So there was still much room for improvement. And it's not like many areas of substantive law where everything has been done, everything has been said before, everyone has thought about everything and there's just little left to think about. And with legal technology, there is so much new stuff, so many new problems that you can work on that there is really no way that you will have to find the smallest of niches to sort of conform your research interest to. And I think there is a lot of potential in the space, even still after years and years of hype. Of course, the hype is also dangerous because I know I certainly felt that way and I know a lot of other people still feel that way. And I think that's something we have to communicate. It's not all just hype, right? So it's not like some people are going to be mad at me for saying this, but it's not like blockchain where it's a hype and it just ever increases in price and people just do it because it's new. But there is real potential for making things better, making the legal system better by the way of technology. And it takes a while and it takes some convincing for many people to make them believe that this is really the case and that it's not just someone who wants you to join their cause and join their cargo cult. And I think this is the most important message that this is real. This is something that can make a real difference in people's lives. And that's why we need to focus our efforts and resources on this movement and on this idea. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it kind of does. It's always interesting to hear another perspective. And I was just thinking that what fascinates me is how broad the whole topic has become. You can find something in the legal technology operations and in general innovation space in law, no matter 
whether you're interested in entrepreneurship and want to start your own company, whether you want to be more of an entrepreneur, so you want to change something in an existing organization because you feel it's not done in the right way. Or for example, you want to make sure that the legal system in total works better. I'm thinking of a lot of very interesting technology solutions in the access to justice, A to J space. And it is always, I think, amazing to see how people with a fresh set of eyes see an existing problem and then find solutions with technology to solve it. So this is not all about startups. This is not about big law firms and their innovation initiatives. It is about that, but it's not only about that. It is about immigration apps that help people make sense of when they arrive in a new country. It is about evaluating your claims for passenger rights when you had to cancel your flight or when the company canceled the flight. It's about making sure that you as a single parent get the money that you are entitled to in your jurisdiction without having to go through tons and tons of forms. It is about making the law work for the people. And that's something that I've always found particularly fascinating. Everybody, no matter what your general idea of where you want to have an impact in the world is, everybody can or will find others and a worthy cause to solve a legal problem with technology. Just because part of my calling is research, I thought I'd share a little bit with you guys what it means for legal research. Because one could say, well, especially where legal research is primarily doctrinal, as in our jurisdiction in Germany, but also in other countries, one could say, so what does this mean for legal research? And one one very clear and obvious problem is how to create the law for new technology. That is something that a vast number of very talented and smart people is thinking about. How to make sure the technologies we develop from social medias to autonomous vehicles, how do we make sure that all of these work the way we want and that the people who have invented them or sell them play by the rules? So that's technology law. The area I want to talk about is how can we use technology to actually learn something about the law and the legal system. And Larry, you mentioned earlier quantitative legal studies, computational legal studies. We have now seen that with the tools at our disposal, natural language processing, network science, just generally text and data mining techniques, we can process huge amounts of legal data. They can be court decisions, they can be legislation, statutes, they can be regulations, they can also be metadata or international treaties. And you can now analyze them in bulk and then learn new things, which I find fascinating because, as you said, it can be hard in many disciplines to really truly learn things people have never known before or they are very specialized. And now in my field, in quantitative legal studies, that happens every day. It's hard because sometimes you have to build the tools for your discovery yourself first, and that's hard because there aren't so many well-understood methods that have been used for a long time, but you have to build the analytical tools, the methods, all from the ground up. But that's the first exciting step. And then you can actually look at the law from a quantitative perspective with, of course, doctrinal understanding of it. Because this is not a field that can be done by people from the natural sciences alone, just as well as it can't be done by lawyers alone. It really requires interdisciplinary work. But then you find amazing things. You find that some of the traditional notions in comparative law, for example, where we thought that we could create families of law, where individual countries would fall into one family, and then there would be a different family, that that's not 
so true if you decide to look at all the data that you can confirm some of the earlier theories, that you can also falsify some of the thoughts in the past, and all that in a field where people thought it was all just opinions. It is opinions, and opinions are very important. And the idea of creating the best legal system requires a lot of theoretical thinking, but it also requires people to test things, to test new regulations, to actually learn what the world that we're regulating looks like. It is something that I would say is worth dedicating your life to because you feel a little bit like one of these early day explorers. Wherever you land, wherever you look around, you see new stuff. And that is, for a researcher and a scientist, that's really exciting. So I don't want to go into details. If you're interested, you can read something that's called Complex Societies and the Growth of the Law. That is a recent publication that shows some of this. And then we have another one that's called Measuring Law Over Time that will appear in a physics journal that you might want to check out just to get an idea of what this means. But that is just one research team's take. That is just the legal data science research team here at Bootsy of which I'm a member, but not the only one. On our website, you'll see all the others who are prolific minds and great people. And there are many more teams out there, but there aren't nearly enough. So if anyone out there thinks that they have the skill set of researching the law with methods from computer science or natural sciences, this community is very open. We're very interested in seeing what you can do with this. And then we all want to be sure that what we find out can be tied back to practice so that the people out there, the lawyers, the people in an in-house function, the judges, the actual rule makers in parliaments and in the executive branch of government, that they can use these results to actually make the experience better, to actually lead to a better legal system all around. I think this is an important and exciting task, and I would really invite everybody to join us on that journey. We both mentioned that it's still a young and nascent field and that it's still a bit of the Wild West. So you can do whatever you want and chances are people haven't thought about it or published about it yet. Why would you say is that? Is that because the technology hasn't been here before? Or would you say because there are incentives in the system and there is generally a conservatism that prefers the old and tried and tested methods of thinking about the law, which is doctrinal and dogmatic thought? Well, there is, as usual, a multitude of reasons. I would say that one, conservatism and using something that's tried and tested and trustworthy is a really good idea if you deal with risk. So when people say lawyers are conservative and they don't want change, I'm always thinking that's a very good quality for the person that is the steward or the guardian of your company to make sure that you don't cross the lines. You want them to be conservative because typically really important risks are involved. So it's okay to think twice, but it's not okay to always think twice because every strategy is useful in some cases and it's not useful in others. And so I think that maybe our orientation education-wise towards liberal arts and away from natural sciences has something to do with it. I think that also the field of law is a fascinating area where you can get lost. You can get lost debating particularly points of law with other legal scholars, with your professors, with your colleagues. And sometimes when people who are very excited about something really drill deep, they can lose sight of what the overall system does, the overall environment. So I think that has to do with it. I also think that there are certain way of technological progress that now favor these approaches, mainly availability of data and some advancements in the analytics. 
not so much that people have invented the craziest new algorithms five minutes ago. A lot of what we use has been around for a couple of decades, but it becomes very easy to use these tools. You actually reduce the amount of prior training that you need. And that's not to say that you don't need excessive training, because if you want to make sense of it, the best way to do it is to really know your computer science and to know your law or to work with people who can cover both sides. So that might be another reason for it. It just takes time to fully understand the methods and the problems. So I think many people, and rightfully so, decide to go for a quicker route where you just learn one of these areas and then work in it. And that's perfectly fine. But if you want to have an impact, it requires some knowledge. Okay, and now to tie it all together, why is this important to the legal system and how do we connect it to the rest of this podcast series? That's a good question. Because as everybody, we might have gone lost a bit with the things that we find fascinating. I think here is why this is important. Legal technology is here to stay. It's a global phenomenon. You will encounter it in every practice and every area of law, no matter what you do. So you have to have some grasp of the topic. As you said, Larry, it's a bit of the Wild West out there. So that means that many of the people you talk to about these things might not know what they talk about. And you have to have a way of distinguishing the actual stuff from the hype and all the buzzwords. So we want to provide you with a tool set for making sense of what other people tell you, of what you read online goes into the right direction. And I think we would like to encourage you to actually continue to ask questions until you fully understand it. Because in many of these interdisciplinary fields, people profit of the ignorance or the fear of people to admit that they don't know. And there's no reason for it. This is a new phenomenon. This is a difficult phenomenon. You need to understand a lot of different things. So when you talk to people about this, don't be afraid to ask and to continue asking and to go in depth because the real experts in the field, they can lead you from every single level of complexity to a higher or lower one. They will take the time and there's nothing like a stupid question. Over the next couple of episodes in this podcast, we want to bring in some of the experts from these fields. We want to make sure that you get a huge variety of perspectives. We will ask these hard questions. We will test whether these folks actually know what they're talking about. And we want to demonstrate to you how you can make sense of this global trend of legal technology, legal innovation, legal operations. If the only thing you do is listen to this one episode, then we have been two very lucky guys. I really hope that you listen to other episodes, but none of that is really enough. You have to keep your eyes open and you have to check out the internet, conferences, legal tech essentials, really anything to make sure that you understand what's going on. This is time really well spent and I would be very happy if you could join us for some part of that journey actually. And I think that is all we have time for today. Thank you very much, Dirk. I hope you guys enjoyed it and I hope you can join us for another one of these episodes and see you then. Thank you, Larry. Goodbye. See you guys on the next episode.